the gut has been called the second brain for a really good reason. So we have more neurons in our gut than we do in our spinal cord. And 90% of the communication, of, of, I'd say 90% of the feedback of communication is from our gut up to the brain. Not, not necessarily as much the reverse. So the gut really informs the brain as to what's going on. So it's a second brain in that way. It's not like we can make decisions with our gut. Uh, well, that's that's a whole other topic on into maybe on intuition, you know. But literally, we can't we can't uh, debate politics or, or play music with our with our gut the way that we can with our brain. But our gut having so many neur uh, neurons in it is like a second brain. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Hi, I'm Dr. Gregory Kelly. Before we get into this week's episode, I'm excited to share some information on a new product I helped formulate called Qualia Symbiotic. As a naturopathic physician, one of the most common concerns among my patients has always been gut and digestive health. In fact, recent survey data indicates approximately 40% of Americans experience digestive health discomfort on at least a monthly basis. But digestion is just one part of gut health. Did you know your gut also contains millions of neurons? It forms a two-way communication pathway with your brain called the gut-brain axis that affects your mood and brain performance. Your gut health is also crucial to immune health, optimal nutrient absorption, and even your aging process. In creating Qualia Symbiotic, I worked with the Neurohacker Science team to factor in a far broader range of considerations than just digestion alone, to create an all-in-one formula supporting the full picture of gut health. The 28 gut health superfoods and ingredients in Qualia Symbiotic includes four-form probiotics, psychobiotics that are ideal for supporting healthy brain performance, along with prebiotics, postbiotics, and fermented foods. And unlike many gut health products, Symbiotic is shelf-stable with no refrigeration needed. It's also non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and FODMAP-friendly. Add one scoop a day and a glass of water for comprehensive gut health support without the hassle and effort of a complicated gut health regimen. Go to neurohacker.com slash insights15 to try Symbiotic risk-free for 100 days experience the difference that total gut health support can make. That's Qualia Symbiotic at neurohacker.com slash insights15 to start supporting the full picture of gut health. Welcome, everybody. This is the Neurohacker Collective podcast. My name is Daniel Schmachterberger. I'm with the research and development team here at Neurohacker. And we are delighted to have Dr. Nafisa Parpia with us today, talking about the role of the microbiome dysbiosis and chronic infection on mental, emotional, psychological, cognitive health and well-being. And so Dr. Parpia is a naturopathic integrative doctor. She did her schooling at Bastyr University. And then she went and did a year of training at the Sophia Clinic with Dr. Klinghart and you know some of the world-renowned doctors there working on complex chronic illness cases, infection, toxicology, many of those underlying drivers of complex illness, and has worked in a number of cutting-edge facilities since then. She's currently at Gordon Medical, which is largely focused on chronic complex illness in the Bay Area, and they're doing some really pioneering work on clinical metabolomics. But her practice is kind of half and half between people who are seeking optimization and life extension on the wellness side and people who are working with chronic illness. Obviously, infection and microbiome is just one part of it, but it's a part that she's done a lot of work with, so we wanted to dive into that. So, Nafisa, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Such an honor. Yay. So, we're, we're happy to have you, and Nafisa and I have had the opportunity to actually work on a few people's cases together and to actually kind of compare notes on addressing things like infection. So knew this would be fun. So for a lot of people, the idea of chronic subclinical infection is it doesn't even make sense, right? We, there is a classic idea of acute infection. You have C. difficile and you have to get on antibiotics or you're going to die or you have, you know, acute flu or MRSA or whatever it is, but asymptomatic or where the symptoms are 
you know, delayed in time or non-obvious infection is something that the integrative functional naturopathic medicine community has focused on for a long time. Many traditional systems of medicine have is not one of the common parts of Western medical focus, except in cases where now, you know, there's more awareness of things like the role of H. pylori in stomach cancer or, you know, viruses and certain kinds of cancers. So that's, you know, increasing in awareness. But can, can we just start by talking about chronic infection that is not acute? What's that about? Yeah. So there can be infections in certain areas of the body, dental and sinuses, but people have no idea about it. Essentially, these illnesses are contained in the immune system. They're completely without symptoms. It can be viruses, bacteria, even Lyme and co-infections. People can be walking around with such infections. No idea about it until there's a stressor. Okay? And that stress depletes the immune system. All of a sudden, now they're walking around with symptoms. So I see a lot of patients like that. Stresses, stressors can be physical, often motor vehicle accidents. They can be emotional or mental stresses. Anything that brings the immune system down and that allows for the microbes to fester. Suddenly, the person showing symptoms. So one of the key ideas here is that if someone starts showing symptoms, it might not be that the infection happened right before then. It might have been that there was infectious exposure that stayed below a particular level long term and then you know, and this is oftentimes the case with like someone who has a long-term chronic herpes infection, a physical or emotional stressor can actually bring about an outbreak that can happen with lots of other kinds of infections. Absolutely. Yeah. And the symptoms might not be obviously connected to the type of infection. No, they might not be. These, these infections can spread to different systems of the body. So someone could have infection in their jaw, but they'll, they'll feel headaches or Sometimes those infections, the bugs or the biotoxins or inflammation can, can drop down towards the gut or, or the respiratory system. Then they're having symptoms in those different areas. So it takes a lot of hunting around to find out where the infections are and what they are. So for those who are already deeply familiar with these topics, be patient as we kind of lay down the foundations. We'll get into deeper things, but we want to kind of start at the beginning. So those who aren't familiar, get a lay of the land. So you mentioned biotoxins. So what's the difference between an infection and a biotoxin relationship? So microbes, parasites, you know, parasites, smaller microbes, they send out toxins as a way to protect themselves from our, our body's immune system. And, and they're smart. So those toxins can actually win over our immune system, especially if we have, we're compromised in other ways. So if we have multiple infections, if we have environmental toxicity, those biotoxins, which microbes and parasites send out, they can bring our immune system down even further. Yeah. So mold is a pretty classic example, right? There is. Yeah. When people are dealing with mold in their environment, they might not actually have any living mold in their body. They're just dealing with the mycotoxic byproducts that the mold produces. Definitely. And we can measure those the mycotoxins. So you started to categorize types of infections. You said parasites and microinfections. Do you want to give a kind of lay of the land of the categories of infection we look at in subclinical cases? Yes. So there can be viruses, Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, Coxsackie virus. So these are viruses that can be kind of insidious. They can exist. person doesn't know. Okay. And then there's Bacteria, there can be gut bacteria, there can be bacteria in the respiratory system, and then parasites. Parasites are a big one. They're difficult to test for, so those have to be more a clinical diagnosis based on what the patient is telling me, based on their symptoms, international travel. The other bugs, they're easier to test for. Now, uh, parasites mean two things. It means macroscopic parasites, which means actual bugs, right? Multicellular things, worms and flukes, and then microscopic par protozoa. Protozoa are usually easy to test for. I find them on yeah. stool tests often, but I think of them as sucker fish. So if you have those small protozoa or blastocystis, enterobacter, I find, find those often on tests. I think of them as sucker fish on sharks. Sharks are the bigger, the bigger parasites. Those, those can exist. I have patients sending me pictures of what they find. So this is a fun topic because outside of like 
pinworms in kids. In the developed world, most people don't think about worms in humans. So they think about them in dogs and cats and livestock, right? And they'll, they will deworm their dogs every year, deworm their cats. If fleas are around, they know they have to deworm more. And they even know that we're not just talking about GI worms. We have heartworm is a common thing in dogs, right? So we're like, oh, worms can get into dog hearts, but they don't get into human hearts, right? Or, you know, or in other organs. So I think most people think about worms in terms of tropical infections in poor areas like guinea worm. Um, but this is not a really good way of thinking about it. And where you started, Dr. Klinghart, actually, I think, does a lot of emphasis in macroscopic parasite infections. So talk to us more about this. These, can, these are very common in people, more common than people think. So I'm talking about complex chronic illness right now. Dr. Klinghart um, uses the term uneasy alliance. He says we've got an uneasy alliance with these parasites. Our bodies are more likely to have such parasites. It, it, heavy metals and other toxins make our body more of a breeding ground for such parasites. And so the alliance, the uneasy alliance is that these parasites, they, they hold on to our toxic burden for us. But we have a better way to deal with our toxic burden than to have parasites that are sucking the nutrients out of us or giving us GI distress, making us weak. So to just kind of go into this a little bit, we obviously have a symbiotic relationship with the bacteria in our microbiome and with the healthy yeast in the microbiome. Yeah. What we're saying here is that you can have a symbiotic relationship in a compromised condition, but it's a compromised symbiosis. And so this is a species that wouldn't normally exist or that would exist in much smaller amounts. In the case of parasites, wouldn't normally exist at all that actually serve a symbiont role. Yes. But at a cost. Exactly. Can you say a little bit about the accumulation of toxins? Because I don't think that is also a commonly known topic. No, it's not. So, you know, one thing we've noticed in medicine is that illnesses are different. Suddenly we're seeing people with more autoimmune conditions, multiple chemical sensitivity, higher susceptibility to infections. So these bugs have always been here. Lyme has been here. Mold has been here. The viruses were here 15 years ago, right? Why are we more susceptible to them in a way that we weren't before? Why are suddenly people more susceptible to chemicals? These autoimmune conditions, why are we suddenly creating, suddenly creating antibodies, suddenly and certainly creating antibodies to our own self? And I think it has a lot to do with the onslaught of toxicity in our world. So in the air we breathe, in the food we eat, okay? and Dr. Klinghart really talks about this as well. And so um, I do a ton of detoxification work, but I measure it through labs. I'll measure heavy metals. I'll measure pesticides and solvents and chemicals, and we'll definitely see these elevated without a doubt in my patients with neurological illnesses and you know, chronic infectious diseases as well. Okay. So I want to actually get clear on the topic of a, a subclinical condition, whether we're talking about subclinical infection or subclinical toxicology. Because again, when we think about heavy metal infections from a traditional allopathic point of view, we're thinking about acute industrial exposure. And there's a you know level of mercury exposure where we say, oh, there was acute mercury toxicity, and we're going to do some active kind of detox chelation. And we think about that as a, you know, a toxicology-caused illness. Acute, very high level. Then we think about what ideal levels are. And the key is that there's a pretty big range in between ideal and actual toxic exposure, which we'd call a subclinical level of toxicity. That's not going to instantly poison you. It might be asymptomatic, but it's going to weaken the system. Do you want to talk a little bit more about, from that perspective, how often you see toxicity, deficiency, and infectious things that people wouldn't normally think of if they were just thinking about normal toxic levels? Yeah. So my patients who are sick, they've, they've seen about 20 different doctors before they come to me or before they come to Gordon Medical. They've been told, you're fine, your labs look normal, go home, or this is all in your head. Here's an antidepressant to help you with this. Okay. My patients who are well, who are, who are looking for a little bit more optimization, they're told, oh, it's just age. You're just, you're just now in your 40s. These things happen to you. Go home. But when you dig deeper, then you're able to find that toxic load pretty high in my sick population for sure. Borderline high in people who are well to a level where I want to decrease it for prevention. So if we take heavy metals, for instance, and 
as as one example of uh, toxic load that according to this model, increases the susceptibility for infections, parasitic and other kinds of infections, because decreases immune function. Heavy metals are maybe as controversial a topic as you can get outside of maybe vaccines, right, and medicine. Chelation is a very controversial topic, how to even assess it, the problem with hair labs and urine labs, why provoked metal assessment is tricky. I'd I'd be very happy if listeners are interested to actually get into the the body of clinical data here and research on it. But just from your actual patient experience and clinical experience, not from not from literature. So when you when you do a provoked metal challenge and you see elevated lead or cadmium or mercury or whatever, and then you do some detox protocol using chelation or binders or whatever you do, what do you see happen for people? I see quite a few things happen. For sick people, I've seen nerve issues go away. Nerve issues, meaning things like restless leg syndrome, avulsions, things disappear in sick people. Okay. I've seen cognition become more clear for people. They're less confused. I've seen memory become better and the immune system improved. So they're, they're actually less susceptible to their infections once I start to clear the metals out. And with regard to immune system, you mean not just that they're getting sick less often, but you can actually see biomarkers change, immune biomarkers. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now this idea of an uneasy alliance with parasites mm-hmm. would say you don't want to get rid of the worms if you have them right away without addressing metals, if the worms are actually accumulating metals and protecting the body from it. It would also say that... Uh, just getting rid of the metals on its own um, might not work as well as if you kind of work with the two together. So is that your approach? Absolutely. So I layer the approach. So before I start to kill off parasites, I do a lot of detoxification work. It might be with metals, mycotoxins as well. So I'll detoxify first to make the body, if you will, less of a, a breeding ground for the parasites and microbes. I detoxify and then I, I come in and I start to bring the microbial count or the parasite count down um, using either herbs or pharmaceuticals. And then I rotate because I know that when I'm killing microbes and parasites, they dump the metals and they also dump biotoxins. So I need to sweep that, sweep that up from the body, if you will, and discharge it. Coming back to worms, flukes, macroscopic uh, bugs, even though they might not be as acutely lethal to someone as a particular bacteria or virus might be, it just freaks people out to think about bugs inside of them basically eating their tissue. It's an interesting topic. Now, the reason they're hard to diagnose is if you do a stool test, you're obviously only going to see things that show up in the GI tract, not things would be in other areas, but they're not necessarily shedding in the stool, right? Unlike microbiome, which is going to be everywhere, we might be looking at a small number of these in particular locations. So you'd need many, many stool labs to have a high sense of accuracy and not have false negatives. And obviously, if we're talking about things in other parts of the body, you're not going to see it in the stool. You have to depend on antibodies, which are fairly unreliable. So diagnosis is tricky. So you're largely working on clinical presentation. I am. Yep. So what do you look for where you think maybe it's time to treat parasites? So um, here are some basic symptoms. So a person, person is hungry all the time. They're ravenous. They're not able to, to nourish themselves. They eat and they eat. And I look at their, their micronutrient levels. They're low in amino acids, low in minerals, vitamins, antioxidants. But they're eating. They're eating a beautiful diet. Okay. A lot of other symptoms like gas and bloating, usually constipation. Could also show is diarrhea. Itching of the anus as well is very common. So these would all indicate GI parasites that would be actually taking nutrients, damaging the mucosal lining, making it hard to absorb nutrients, yeah. making GI issues. How, so if you're looking at something like lungworm mm-hmm. or liver flukes or things that are you know, outside of the GI system, what would you look at? You know, that would be symptomatic based on inflammation, really. Are they, are they sensitive to everything? Now, now I'm guessing I can't, I can't diagnose those. That's mm-hmm. really a wild guess. And, and treating for those directly, that's hard to do. But if I treat the system 
their whole body systemically, I believe that when their body, when they're, when I can increase their immunity, make their body stronger, those other very much harder to diagnose parasite infections can come down. And the, the Klinghart style parasite protocol has a lot of systemic antiparasitics. It does. Mm-hmm. It does. So when you, when you run that protocol on people, again, what do you find happens as people go through the antiparasitic work? Initially, they can get wiped out, so I might have to slow them down on it. Others, they feel nothing. They're like, I I can't even tell I'm taking medicine, but I feel increased energy. Some people are just really, really tired, and I think that has to do with the body's ability to detoxify. So it's going to be a different response for each person. And so then I have to modulate based on on how that person reacts. So beyond what's happening as they're in the protocol and their body's obviously processing the meds and processing die off if it's happening. What do you actually find as a result of the protocol overall? Overall at the end of the day, they've got much more increased health. Their, their Lyme symptoms tend to go away. I'm not directly treating the Lyme. What I'm doing is I'm treating the parasites I'm treating the toxicity that makes the body less susceptible to to the Lyme and to other infections. General overall sense of wellness after the, that protocol is done for sure. Given that we're not dealing with high reliability diagnostic methods here, mm-hmm. um, but we're dealing with when clinical presentation indicates and then what percentage of people actually respond. In cases where people have some chronic illness, they're dealing with autoimmunity or neurodegen or chronic fatigue, how often do you see parasites indicated? And I'm talking about people in your practice, which means they live in the Bay Area. They don't live in sub-Saharan Africa. No, it's very common. Very, very common. And so remember how I said when I do a stool test, like we can see the smaller pathogens, right? They're, they're easy to see. The amoebas, the enterobacter, blastocystis. I see those every day on, mm-hmm. on the healthy people. I see it on the sick people as well. Mm-hmm. So from there, that's an indicator to me that there are more parasites. I see it every day in my practice on on those stool tests. So the interesting thing here is that people who are asymptomatic and healthy, as you mentioned earlier, might be some stressful incidents away from having an infection that is actually being kept at a relatively low level, be able to go into some kind of cascade. Definitely. I'd love to speak to that a bit. So most of my patients who are chronically ill, they, they, they have businesses they run, they're, some of them are Olympians, some of them are celebrities. They're people who are highly functional in the world. And they, they had been for a long, long time. And the key was all of a sudden something happened. And that is a case of a subclinical infection suddenly becoming big in somebody, somebody who's driven and having, having a very engaged life. Suddenly they're not. Suddenly they're having to have conversations about, about remediating their house from mold, you know, conversations that might make them look a little bit weird in the world all of a sudden. Yeah. So this is interesting, right? Because somebody can get in a car accident and have a sore neck and do some massage or chiropractics or rest and then be fine. Or they can get in a car accident and then start having weird unexplained symptoms and then have chronic fatigue syndrome in a few months that lasts is debilitating. Or someone can have a divorce and be emotionally bummed versus emotionally bummed and then they get chronic illness. And so this is why preventative medicine in healthy people is so important, is being able to increase resilience to things that are going to happen. People are going to have life events that they don't have to result in the same level of negative response. Exactly. So this is, this is, do you have a lot of patients who come just for the preventative medicine and kind of longevity wellness effects? That's been happening a lot over the past year, year and a half. Most definitely, especially here in the Bay Area, people, people are really interested in optimization over here. And then they're surprised at the things I might find. I'm surprised too at the things I find, subclinical infections, toxicity, and the optimizer, they want to test everything. They're interested. They want to know, what do my hormones look like? Do I have toxicity? How about my neurotransmitters and my adrenal function? 
So they want to do all the functional medicine tests because they want the data on themselves. So we, we mentioned that we wanted to talk about the role of chronic infections and dysbiosis and not just overall health and chronic illness, but specifically mental, emotional well-being. So we can start with any category, then we can dive in deeper. But whether we're looking at bacteria or mycoplasma or fungal or parasitic, what do you notice in terms of the role that infections play when people are dealing with anxiety, sleep issues, depression, et cetera? Yeah. So the key is that it's a sudden, it's a sudden change in emotion. So it's normal for healthy people, you know, to have some level of anxiety or depression or different variabilities of OCD. Okay. That, that's very normal in the healthy population. But when suddenly we go from having, you know, sweaty palms before an important meeting to panic attacks, suicidal ideations, severe mental confusion, right there, that's the key for me. I know that there's a sub. I don't, I don't want to say I know, I am almost certain there's a subclinical infection that's, that's turned that. So can you describe the mechanism, right? So how do we go from some kind of infection to suicidal ideation? And you don't have to focus on suicidal ideation, but when we think of anxiety, depression, ideation, we think about neurologic effects and neurotransmitter effects and neurohormone effects. So can you tie the, the mechanisms together? Yeah, absolutely. So the gut has been called the second brain for a really good reason. So we have more neurons in our gut than we do in our spinal cord. And 90% of the communication, of, of, I'd say 90% of the feedback of communication is from our gut up to the brain, not, not necessarily as much the reverse. So the gut really informs the brain as to what's going on. So it's a second brain in that way. It's not like we can make decisions with our gut. Uh, well, that's that's a whole other topic on into maybe on intuition, you know. But literally, we can't we can't uh, debate politics or, or play music with our with our gut the way that we can with our brain. But our gut having so many neur uh, neurons in it is like a second brain, and there can be neuroinflammation, and that inflammation can travel upwards to the brain. And that's what can cause changes in mood. It can cause depression. There's also an increase in cytokines as well, chemical mediators, which increase inflammation. The more inflammation there is in our gut, that will travel upwards right, through, it's like a highway, a neurological highway between the gut and the brain. So even though this has been a popular idea in functional medicine world for some time, just kind of really entered the mainstream, I'd say in the last couple of years, thinking of depression as being largely influenced by neuroinflammation. And the idea of depression almost being thought of as rheumatism of the brain as, you know, really kind of caught on. And that I don't think of it that way because I don't think of depression as one thing. I think of it as lots of different things with different ideologies, but that's certainly one of them, right? Head trauma can do it on its own and just purely psychoemotional things that are not physiologic can, but, but whether we're dealing with mold exposure or some kind of subclinical infection in the body, the idea that it creates inflammation, inflammation that can cross blood brain barrier and cause neuroinflammation, and then the neuroinflammation affects brain dynamics, whether we're talking about depression or anxiety or neurologic issues or brain fog, those can all be mediated by neuroinflammation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Autism, for instance, I think there are many, many causes for autism. But one thing the research has shown is that children who are autistic have a very different gut milieu than, than healthy children. That's one way to, to look at one of the, the factors of autism, although, of course, it's, it's so many. So when I think about the gut-brain axis, I think about at least three different dynamics. One is the enteric nervous system, right, the, the neurologic the neurons throughout the GI system that then send signal to the brain. I think about uh, all the chemistry moving from the gut into the blood, which is going to be both nutrients and possibly toxins, inflammation, et cetera, that can then affect the environment that the nervous system lives in. And then I also think about the microbiome and the microbiome, both in terms of the way that it modulates genetic expression mm -hmm. and the fact that just from a really simple point of view, a huge percentage of our primary neurotransmitters are produced by the microbiome of the gut. Mm -hmm. 
And so if we've got 50 to 80% of our dopamine, serotonin, GABA produced by microbiome and we have some kind of dysbiosis or infections driving dysbiosis, that's a pretty massive loss of transmitter function immediately. It sure is. So do you, do you assess for that? Do you do things like look at neurohormones, neurotransmitters, and look at, say, gut microbiome and infection, kind of put those pieces together to then assess priority of treatments? Yeah, I do. So I'll look at neurotransmitter function. Usually people's neurotransmitters are, are quite low. That's common, especially in complex chronic illness. And it's even common in optimizers who've just worked so hard, they've, they've tanked themselves a little bit. So I'll look at that and I'll look at their GI system. Most of the time, when I'm looking at both, I'm going to find dysbiosis in the gut. Okay? That, that link I see very often. So these people will have a lot of yeast, different funguses, smaller bacteria. Those will be seen. And usually I want to treat the gut first because that's what's insulting the production of neurotransmitters. So I'm treating the insult first, then I work on balancing the neurotransmitters. I'll layer them in. I'll start working on the gut maybe for a month and then layer in neurotransmitter treatment on top of it. And then it's working concurrently, but give the gut a head start. So this is a pretty common best practice in naturopathic medicine, starting the gut. We've obviously got the mucosal system, which is everywhere that the environment connects to our body that isn't skin eyes, sinuses, mouth, urogenital, bronchioles, gut, you've got then, and so you can have infection there. You can have infection in the blood. You can have infections in the cells. Why do you start with the gut? Because that, that is the center of the production of the immune system, okay? And that's where it all begins. However, oftentimes if people have mycotoxins or fungus in their sinuses, I may start with their sinuses first because it's such a bony, concentrated area I just, I just want to give them some relief. And I also know that infections from here, they travel downwards quickly. So I want to clear this up first, and then I'll go to the gut. Depending on, on the severity of the sinus infection, I see a lot of people with quite severity in their sinuses. And uh, proximal to the brain is relevant. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Same with dental infection. That's right. People turn a corner in complex chronic illness when they fix certain dental infections. So let's talk about that. I think... As far as biologic dentistry goes, most people are aware that mercury fillings aren't a great thing and that uh, maybe the proper removal of mercury is a good idea. I think that's the most common idea. The idea of subclinical infection other than systemic gingivitis is a less well-known idea. Do you want to talk about that? Definitely. But I also want to talk about the mercury first. Okay. You brought it up. You'd be surprised how many people come to me saying that they had their metal amalgams removed by a non-biological dentist. They have swallowed the mercury, it is vaporized up, and they are sick. Yeah. And, and I will measure their blood mercury. It's high. I'll do a urine provoke test, that's high. And once we start to get the mercury out, there's a big difference in their cognition. And some of them have come with neurological symptoms as well. Those as well shift. So the best practice there is, if you're gonna remove mercury, go to someone who actually knows what they're doing. Exactly biological or systemic dentist. So I pretty much always recommend people who are trained in Huggins protocol. Is that also what you do? Mm -hmm. All right. So speaking of Huggins protocol, let's continue on the topic of subacute dental infections. So when wisdom teeth have been improperly extracted and underneath root canals, there can be subclinical infections. So the patient has no idea. They're asymptomatic. They can't feel it, but they have a lot of brain fog. They have headaches. They might even have, have trigeminal neuralgia. They have no idea there's an infection in their jaw. So I ask them, have you had your wisdom teeth extracted? Do you have root canals? Okay. So when people have infections up in here, those are my two questions. Right away, I send them to a biologic slash systemic dentist because those dentists have what's called a CT scan and an ICAT. And it's a CT scan, which allows us to see small slices of the bone and find localized infections, which aren't seen on regular Panorex digital x-rays. They're not seen with the naked eye. They're, they're missed in traditional dentistry, just downright missed. Okay? And once those infections are, are cleaned up, that's when I see a lot of head symptoms resolve. Do you run Huggins PCR assessments for infection also to look at the species and load? Our biological dentist does. Yeah. Yeah. Be, be surprised by what comes back. <laughs> yeah. Interesting infections. 
Yeah. So, so will you explain for people what is an improper extraction and why would that lead to infection and why would root canal lead to infection? You know, there's small, there's small areas. An, impo an improper extraction could be leaving an area not sutured well, not closed well. It, it, it stays open. I've had people had material like gauze left in there. Then they've had, had to have the gauze removed and then it doesn't heal. That doesn't heal properly. So there's, there's many different ways when this, the, the surgery isn't quite perfect and that, that's a finicky area. And like I said before, a lot of bone in there, small, compact areas. So that's when infections can happen. I think with regard to extraction, what wisdom teeth or other extractions, one of the common things is even if the surgery is done well, there is a ligament that connects the teeth to the bone and that if the ligament's not fully removed, then it's dead tissue. And then how does the body get rid of dead tissue? Typically that's a, uh, a microbes job. And yes. so then you have a pocket that with some dead tissue in it where you end up having breeding ground for microbe. Mm -hmm. Also, if there was infection in the tooth to begin with, it might've gone into the bone if it wasn't cleaned all the way. So the Huggins protocol is a process where they make sure to go in, get rid of the ligament, go into the bone, stimulate bone bleeding so it actually heals more deeply and you get, you get removal of the infection and no dead tissue left. Right. Which is the same thing with root canal in terms of dead tissue. You end up getting a tooth left that has no immune system in it, but is permeable so that all those miles of dentin tubule can be a place that infection can hide out. Yeah. And then those infections travel. They can travel upwards towards the brain. They can travel down. So infections travel, biotoxins travel. The same goes with sinus. So let's talk about the sinus thing, right? So with the dental infections, someone can have a dental infection where they don't, they, they go to their normal dentist and their dentist says everything's fine, right? They don't have dental issues. They don't have gingivitis because if we're looking at something that's maybe at the very root of a root canal tooth, you're not going to see that unless you do one of those diagnostics that we discussed, but it might be affecting ongoing immune and inflammatory dynamics for the blood. So the, the thing that might get better Right? The thing that might have gotten worse is over the course of 10 or 20 years, some very slow just effect on decreased homeodynamics of the whole system. Mm -hmm. And what might get better is some systemic thing that's not localized at all. Right? So the key thing there is that we're not looking at mouth issues as a symptom that to assess. We're looking at any kind of systemic issues. Right. So sinus is similar, right? There is. So you're not talking about people who have chronic sinus infections only. No, definitely not. So then what would indicate for you, and then how would you go about testing infections in the sinuses? Yeah, so it's often people who've had mold exposure. They know they've been in a water-damaged place. A lot of people come to me for, for mold exposure because all of a sudden they are sick when they were fine. And I know I want to test their sinuses right away, you know, because they've been breathing that. So a test for Marfan's, which is a kind of staph infection that's antibiotic resistant. Well, it's resistant to many different antibiotics. That's common in people with biotoxin illness, mold illness, and with Lyme. So I'll test for Marfan's, test for other funguses and bacteria. Very typically, I find those things. And so this is a swab. The swab, nasal swab. Yeah. So if someone can come see a functional medicine doctor, get a swab, check it out, treat it, awesome. If if they can't, what is, I'm switching to treatment, I'm bouncing around a little bit, but what is something someone can do for sinus hygiene on their own that can help to decrease infectious load in the sinuses? Yeah, they can do neti pot rinses, so just some, some filtered water, put a little bit of salt in there, okay? Neti pot both sides, that really helps clear things out. They can use, I, I, I'm a really, I'm a fan of Argentan silver, so that can also help clear out infections. There's, they can nebulize it. There's, there's nasal sprays for it as well. Or put it in the neti pot. Exactly. How about the uh, xylitol nasal sprays? Yep, that too. So I, I think that, you know, unless someone has an Ayurvedic background, most people don't think of nasal cleaning as part of their daily or regular hygiene, like they think of teeth cleaning. But you would suggest that people do. I do. I suggest they do it on a regular basis, at least three times a week. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a place where we can harbor bugs for sure. Mm -hmm. And we have more, more of a susceptibility to bugs now than we ever did before due to environmental toxins and yeah, 
and travel where the bugs from any part of the world are now everywhere and uh, antibiotic resistance and pesticide use and et cetera. Yeah. And also I think there's, a, there's an obsession with over sanitizing and people using too much Purell, it, it, too much hand sanitizer, not letting children play in the dirt. We're not allowing our immune systems to be exposed to the beneficial bacteria, which allow our, our immune system to, to become stronger. So actually on that topic, when you think about using germicidal soaps, the triclosan, which is the most common actual antibiotic put in the soaps, how often do you see that show up when you're doing environmental toxicity? I see it. And then I tell them that the triclosan has a, has a link to cancer. So yeah, that's one that I see often. And the link to antibiotic resistance of any infections that happen to be there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen a lot of triclosan show up on toxicology profiles also. Yeah. And yeah. typically find that addressing infections in those people takes more work. It does. I also see a lot of parabens show up. So yeah. those are our beauty products and our show and our and our soaps and shampoos and and makeup. So you know, there's a whole new trend towards holistic beauty as well. And so similarly, if someone was going to want to have a hand soap that had some antibacterial properties, essential oils. Yeah, lavender, tea tree, thyme, oregano. Okay, so we talked about hygiene for the nose. How about when we're talking about subclinical infections in the mouth, hygiene for the mouth? Besides going to see a biologic dentist and get those primary things done, are there any things beyond just basic teeth brushing you recommend? Yeah, for sure, flossing. That's basic, but it's so important because that's, that's right in the tissues. But oil pulling can really help. Tongue scraping. Now we're talking about more Ayurvedic me methods, but they, they, sure, they sure work. So describe those two because oil pulling, oil pulling and tongue scraping are both Ayurvedic, but uh, they might not be familiar to everybody. Yeah. So, so tongue scraping is a little tool, which actually you take that tool and you brush it against your tongue and it removes biofilm and coatings, removes little bugs and then gargling with salt after that, you know, and then oil pulling is, is taking coconut oil, which has antimicrobial effects and, and pulling it in the mouth and swishing it around. And that also pulls, pulls microbes. The way that I generally recommend having people do the oil pulling is whether it's coconut oil or sesame oil, or they get a specialized oil pulling pre-made product that has essential oils in it, is that they're actually vigorously swishing until the oil and saliva have mixed and it actually looks like saliva. It looks white rather than yellow when they spit, it's usually 10 or 15 minutes. And the, the hypothesis there is that you have some antimicrobial properties in the oil that it helps the integrity of the tissues, the gums, right? It's emollient. But also that as an oil, as a fat, that, that it creates an osmotic pressure for fat-soluble toxins to come into the oil and then get spit out. So it is a way to detox some fat-soluble toxins, which supposedly has been microscopy verified. I, I can't uh, verify that myself, but yeah. What about water picking? That can definitely help clean between the gums for sure. That can be food stuck in there, um, which of course will track microbes, but just washing that out. Yeah, I do. Uh, I add silver to the water pick mm -hmm. and use that and decreases the chance of deep pockets. Definitely. The silver will kill off microbes as well. Yeah. All right, good. So then what about, so we're, we're discussing now some kind of home methods people can do outside of the medical therapies. So what about with the gut? We were talking about, you know, if someone actually has macroscopic parasites in the gut, they're going to have to go get appropriate diagnosis, treat that. It'll probably involve meds. If they've got dysbiosis, protozoa, those are going to be very customized protocols. Mm -hmm. If someone doesn't have the resources to go work with a functional medicine doctor right away, what are some basic things that are generally well indicated for gut microbiome health? Yeah. So eating probiotics. So these are foods that are high in, um, in the beneficial bacteria. Things like um, paper, sauerkraut, miso, kimchi, kombucha. Okay? Eating prebiotics. These are the foods that, that feed the healthy bacteria. These are mostly vegetables and fruits, but common ones are apples, pears, celery, artichoke, lentils. Healthy bugs love those. Healthy fats as well, those are going to help to decrease inflammation in the gut. Avocado, coconut, olive oil, chia seeds, hemp seeds, 
and the things that we want to avoid, we want to avoid the overuse of antibiotics. I think for sure there's a, there's a place for antibiotics. I will prescribe them to people you know, when they're necessary, but there's, they're often over-prescribed, prescribed when they're not needed. So to avoid the overuse of antibiotics, definitely to avoid processed sugar, processed foods, those feed the bad bacteria, artificial sweeteners, artificial foods and preservatives, they feed the pathogenic bugs. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about, uh, for GI system in particular, what do you think about fasting and thing, colonics, saltwater flushes, other things for kind of taking the load off the GI system? Yeah, I think it's important to have an oral and a rectal route when we're trying to clean the system. So colonics, definitely, especially when we're trying to get rid of parasites, enemas for sure, fasting. Yeah, fasting, it depends, it depends on what people can tolerate, but if people can tolerate even a bone broth fast just for three days, that can really help to, to fix leaky gut syndrome. It can help to restore the permeability of, of the gut membrane. A water fast can help to reset the metabolism. Some people can tolerate it. So, you know, it depends on, on tolerance, but mm -hmm. yeah, those who can tolerate it can help reset the system. So talk to me about infections in other parts of the body. So we've mostly talked about within the GI system so far, including the mouth and then the, the nasal and sinuses, which is still part of the mucosal system. Mm -hmm. But talk to me about like infections in the prostate and urogenital kinds of infections. Yeah, they're common. I see them. I see them commonly actually in people who have autoimmune conditions and complex chronic illness. You know, the, the basic UTI shows up in the general population as well, but I do see these infections recurrent for people who are sick. So we work with that, with those herbally, just to, one, I want to start with the gut because the inflammation, I believe, starts in the gut and it can work its way down to, mm -hmm. to the lower areas. Mm -hmm. What have you noticed about the relationship? I know you worked at an integrative uh, oncology center. What have you noticed about the relationship of, say, you know, people have prostate cancer, elevated PSA leading into prostate cancer, and uh, increased infectious load, prostate infection? Have you noticed those? I mean, obviously, we know cervical cancer and HPV, right? Yeah. There's a lot of clinical research on the HPV, EBV, mycoplasmas, and prostate cancer. You speak to that? Yeah, we, we can def we've definitely tested for those. Again, through a stool test, definitely have seen correlations there. And I think that, I think it, it is, is, it's the toxins and again, sorry, the biotoxins that, that those microbes spit out that, that cause inflammation in the body travel mm -hmm. downwards and in such close proximity to the gut. So when you're thinking about cognitive health, mental, emotional health, mm -hmm. obviously infection is one component right? Obviously, nutrition is a component and hormones are a component. There's a number of physiologic components. Biotoxins are a component. And then obviously, you have to address psychology and their actual life, right? Relationships. Yeah. How often when you're dealing with mental, emotional dynamics for people that have a physiologic origin, do you see infection or at least dysbiosis involved? All the time. All the time. But the thing is, the people who come to me are half, more than half them are complex chronically ill patients, right away, I search for infections and I find them. And, you know, research has shown that people with complex chronic illness are more prone to depression and anxiety. So I see those hand in hand every day, many mm -hmm. times every day. So are there any other recommendations you want to share? You mentioned avoid antibiotics that are unnecessary and avoid processed sugar and some dietary guidelines. Besides just saying gut, if we wanted to say how to decrease infectious burden and increase immune function systemically, what are other home recommendations that are generally a good idea for people? Yeah. So, you know, definitely my patients travel a lot and just to be careful when, when traveling, even when camping, not to, not to bring green water, um, when you're in developing countries to make sure your fruits and vegetables are cooked. Okay. And at home to make sure your fruits and vegetables are washed thoroughly that you know, in, in cilantro and you know, the small leafy vegetables, there are some really tiny bugs that can get stuck in there. We can eat them. 
and they can they can cause trouble for us as well. And you so, obviously don't just mean bugs, you mean eggs. I which do. Are invisible. I do. Invisible. So what does wash thoroughly mean? Just like a couple drops of hydrogen peroxide or vinegar in the sink that you filled with water, leave mm-hmm. leave your vegetables or fruit in there, but particularly the ones with the small leafies for like 10 minutes and then wash that off thoroughly with water. That helps. That's a pretty extreme measure, but these are for people who who have a propensity to illness for sure. Now that might be many things, but one part of propensity to actually get infection from what someone eats in their fruits and vegetables would have to do with their stomach acid levels, right? Mm -hmm. So any thoughts or guidelines on increasing hydrochloric acid production and as a first part of stomach immunity, of GI immunity? Yeah. You know, you can actually take a little bit of hydrochloric acid. If you have, if you tend to have um, reflux, it's usually because you don't have enough acid, which, which seems counterintuitive, but not enough acid in the stomach causes the sphincter to actually open and release acid upwards. So if that's happening, then for sure that, that, that's often a diagnostic of not having enough acid. I'll just give people some little bit of hydrochloric acid supplement to take. Having a more alkaline diet can help as well. So say what the rough overview of that is. Yeah. So definitely high in veggies, high in fruit, not, not fruit that have a high glycemic load, not super sugary fruits. Of course you can enjoy those as well, but you know, to have those limited, a lot of veggies, low in grains, mostly paleo style, stable meats, do you have any books on diet nutrition that you think are good starter books for people you like to recommend? Yeah. Kim Snyder. I like her book. Dr. Perlmutter's books are interesting. Same with Dr. Gundry's books. Those are interesting as well. Plant Paradox. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then, so obviously if people are wanting to really address the topic of their microbiome mm-hmm. and infection... Mm-hmm. This is something that's very well served working with a functional medicine, integrative medicine doctor that uh, can do the appropriate assessment and treatment protocols. What do you recommend someone look for if they're wanting to find a doc to work with? Yeah, there's a couple things. Homeopathic doctors are very highly trained in, in functional medicine. That's where functional medicine began, really. And MDs who've had functional medicine training, also quite wonderful as well. So definitely to have somebody who has a medical license, whether it's an ND or an MD, and someone who's got some functional medicine training. Now for the training around parasites, that's a whole different ball game. <laughs> that's not taught in regular naturopathic school, regular medical school, or in functional medicine in general, infectious diseases. That's, that's uh, you've got to find someone who's particularly trained in that. So someone who's trained with Dr. Klinghart, for example, or who's trained with Dr. Gordon here, Gordon Medical, or Dr. Anderson here. So there's certain clinics who specialize in these things, and that's where to find in our education system. All right. So this is, I think this is a good introduction to the topic of subacute, you know, subclinical chronic infections, and that this has a role in, you know, possibly has a role in cancer, autoimmunity, neurodegen, chronic illness, fatigue, energy, but also in mental emotional health. And if people want to you know, come work with you. Awesome. If they want to, you know, find someone, you gave them some resources to find, but it, anyone working with chronic illness knows that the, there's a lot of personal responsibility they have to take to figure this out because typically they're working with a number of different doctors and therapists to kind of figure out what they actually need. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with people today? Just kind of closing thoughts on these topics. Yeah. You know, these complex chronic illnesses can happen to anybody. And that's what I see. And, and it's, what, it, it's what surprises me. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of these cases every time. It's a bit of a surprise how healthy the person was before, how functional they were, how driven and engaged they were in their lives. Suddenly something happens and life is just not the same anymore. So prevention is really, really important. So getting diagnostics to understand what is underneath all of this? I want to talk a little bit about metabolomics, actually, and 
we didn't talk about diagnostics, but metabolomics is, it's actually research that Gordon Medical is doing with Dr. Bob Navio at UC San Diego. And it is a test where we're looking at biochemical markers in real time. So it can predict your health and it can predict illness in a way that nothing else can. So it's looking at organic acids, amino acids, vitamins, minerals, different lipids in a way that no other test can right now. The research is still being done, but it's predictive. So, you know, we learned from the human genome product uh, project that, you know, genes are only predictive of 10% of our illnesses, whereas metabolomics is looking at these chemicals in real time. And in, it's actually looking at, at, at the cross between your genes and toxicity or your genes and whatever is, is approaching you to create either, either wellness or illness. So that is, I think, it's going to change the face of medicine. So I'm, I'm excited to be involved in that. Yeah. And so the work you're doing at, at uh, Gordon Medical is one of the few facilities that I know of that's actually doing cutting-edge research-grade metabolomics along with actual clinical diagnostics to start looking for correlation to be able to then train the software system on the interpretation of the metabolome. Yeah, yeah. So we just, you know, published some research on chronic fatigue syndrome, being able to distinguish that from healthy people as well as depression. Mm-hmm. And working on on it for autoimmunity and toxicity. It's very very exciting. So metabolomics might not be a familiar term for everybody here. Do you want to just say a little bit about what the metabolome is and why that would be an interesting diagnostic method? Yeah, yeah. So metabolomics is the measure of molecules in the body that weigh less than a thousand kilodaltons. So enzymes weigh tens of thousands of kilodaltons. So in metabolomics, we're measuring amino acids, organic acids, like I said before, minerals, vitamins, all these fats as well. So all these biochemicals that make up the cells, that make up the organelles. Organelles are the little organs that make up the cell as well. So now we're, we're looking at what our cellular responses. That's looking at the true biochemistry, biochemical makeup of the body. What's interesting with metabolomics is it's in, it's in real time. So the expression of your environment meeting your genes. And so it gives us true, true validation on, on moving forward. When we can start to predict the results, that's when we can have the validation that we're looking for. It's why it's exciting me a lot. Yeah. And so that people understand the the word, I'll just say a little bit more. So with metabolomics, we're looking at the metabolic byproducts of cells. Yeah. And so cells are taking in energy sources from carbohydrates, from fat, from wherever they're taking the energy. And then they're processing that energy and doing all the interesting things cells do. And then they're producing metabolic waste products, byproducts. And so that's a lot. You know, it's 2,600 or so metabolites that we know of, a few hundred primary ones. And basically everything that's happening in the cell ends up showing up in the metabolic byproducts that are coming out of the cell that we can look at in the blood. Looking at what's happening inside the cell is kind of tricky, but what's being released from the cell gives us some pretty good forensics of what's happening in the cell. And so whether the cell is affected by infection or toxicity, or deficiency, and what's actually happening at the level of genetic transcription, not just the genome, but the epigenome, should all show up in the metabolomics. Now, being able to interpret all that is the work over the next few years. Right. It is a very exciting field. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah. Well, I'm happy y'all are prototyping that. And so anyone who comes to Ord Medical for their own work has the chance to actually be part of that research. Definitely. Cool. Thank you. Nafisa, thank you so much for being here with us. This was interesting. If people want to actually find you and be able to come, where what's the website? It's gordonmedical.com. All the contact information is there. Yeah, Great. we have people come from all over the world, all over the country. They come and stay for a month or longer, get their treatment, go back home, come back again. And then we also have Bay Area people who come, of course, as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we will put that link in the show notes for those who are interested. And it was a delight to have you. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only. 
The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.